0: Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges.
1: Hello and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley and I'm here with my colleague Chase Cannon and we are attorneys with NFP and Benefits Compliance. And today we're going to go through a blitz of some recently um, asked compliance questions that have come through that are are popping up repeatedly. Of course, we'll provide some insights around each of them. So Chase, um, give us a little background on why some of these questions are, are arising at this time.
0: Yeah. So some of them are just timely. They're based on like plan year start date. And so they come up regularly around the same time each year. Lots of companies or plans are on a one, one plan year, right? So some of them relate to a particular date on the calendar for all employers and individuals. So it's just the same types of questions come up at the same times of year. Others are just kind of tricky. Um, And so it seems like we get Tricky questions on similar topics, you know, in bunches, but the one of them we're going to talk about seems like a straightforward notice requirement until you get into the details. The devil's in the details, as they say. So what looks like an easy notice requirement can sometimes be challenging because there could be different times that arises or different situations that aren't in the normal course of business. And the employer has to comply. So yeah, just depends.
1: Okay, well, let's start with the first question that relates to Medicare Part D disclosures, probably the one you were just referring to. Uh, And the question is whether there is there a penalty if an employer fails to timely file the Medicare Part D disclosure first to CMS, and then secondly, to provide it to employees?
0: Yeah, so to begin with, employers have to report the creditable status of their prescription drug plans Um, to CMS, that's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I've always wondered why it wasn't CMMS, because it's Medicare and Medicaid. CMS, though. Uh, But creditable means on par with Medicare Part D. So in other words, just high level, what we're talking about, is the employer prescription drug coverage equal to or better than what a person could get if they enrolled in Part D of Medicare? that's the whole point here, uh, but employers are required to report that creditable status within 60 days after the start of the medical plan year. So for one-one plan years, the due date is actually tomorrow, March 2nd. If we were in a leap year though, because the way they word these things, it could change in a leap year. It would be actually be today, March 1st. Um, so it does feel timely, um, but before getting into the penalties, uh, there's that companion disclosure requirement, disclosure to individuals. And that one has an odd, oddly timed date. That's the October 15th, or sometimes you hear it referred to as October 14th. Uh, but employers have to provide the Part D creditable notice to Part D individuals on the plan on an annual basis by October 14th. Technically, it says the requirement says prior to October 15th. That's why you hear October 14th. Uh, but why that date, October 15th, is the first day of Medicare enrollment. Uh, including for Part D. And so the notice has to be sent um, at that point, they're trying to let employees know um, or individuals know what they might be able to, whether it's a good decision to enroll in Part D or not. Um, The notice also has to go out when the individual originally becomes eligible under the group health plan, if the creditable status changes upon individual's request. Um, So because it's hard to know who's Medicare eligible, we recommend sending that to all employees just to be sure, um, you're catch, capturing everybody.
1: And so th- that's a great background. And and so take me now to the penalties if you fail to do so.
0: Yeah, sorry, that was the original question. <laughs> so on to the penalty information. There there are actually no specific penalties for failing to provide these notices, and and. DMS does not have a process for correcting if a plan fails to provide them. So that's the other question we get is how to, how to fix these things if you haven't done it in the past. The only specified penalty relates to a retiree plan attempting to receive the retiree drug subsidy. Uh, that retiree plan would be denied the subsidy if it had not complied with the Part D notifications. We don't see that come up too often, but it is out there. It's worth mentioning. It's also worth mentioning just at a high level that. You know, employers as plan sponsors do have a fiduciary duty under ERISA to comply with all federal laws related to their plan. So it's always good to do these uh, filing requirements, these distribution requirements, even if there's no specific monetary penalty to try and stay in line with that fiduciary obligation to sort of operate the plan in a compliant way. Um, And remember the primary impact if notices are not distributed at least for the noticed individuals Is uh, that Medicare individual, Medicare eligible individual, um, might have delayed enrollment in Part D because they believe their coverage to be credible based on a missing notice, for example. And so that individual could have their own adverse uh, consequences here. If they go to enroll in Medicare, they may be penalized. Um, So to explain a little bit more there, this. Medicare eligible individuals can only delay Part D without a penalty if they have creditable coverage. And so if they've gone without creditable coverage and the timing is specifically for 63 days, um, then they're limited as to when they can enroll in Part D. Um, and that again gets back to the October 15th date. So it could be a big impact on employees. Um, I do want to mention also that we have a really good white paper on this uh, Medicare Part D discussion. So um, that's something that we can provide as a resources as well.
1: So even though employers may not be impacted from a penalty standpoint, they're certainly going to be a morale issue if their employees are impacted by their failure to uh, timely file these uh, various notices. Exactly. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. Our employee is enrolled in an HSA qualified high deductible health plan that also covers her spouse, who will soon be eligible for Medicare. Can the employee still contribute to an HSA? And if so, how much? And can she use the HSA to pay for her spouse's medical expenses? So this this gets to the issue of of the conflict between um, being enrolled in Medicare and HSAs.
0: Yeah, so HSA eligibility is always a hot topic toward the beginning of a plan year and towards the beginning of a calendar year, which we'll get to in just a sec. Um, On this question, though, it's first important to keep in mind that the employees HSA eligibility is based upon whether the employee meets the HSA eligibility criteria, regardless of whether a spouse or any other dependent for that matter. uh, enrolled on the high deductible plan is also HSA eligible so you just look at the employee. quickly again high level to be eligible to make or receive employer HSA contributions. An individual has to be covered by the qualified high deductible plan. They can't have what we refer to as impermissible coverage. That's something uh, like a general purpose FSA or HRA that provides medical benefits before the statutory minimum deductible is met. Um, The employee cannot be claimed as a dependent on someone else's tax return. That's usually not an issue for employees but worth mentioning and then the last part here relates to the question the employee cannot be enrolled in medicare and remember there it's enrollment in medicare not just being eligible that precludes hsa eligibility so getting back to the question if the employee's spouse enrolls in medicare the spouse would no longer be eligible to contribute to their own hsa but the employee's hsa eligibility would not be impacted by that
1: So you mentioned um, enrolled in Medicare. I know there's Medicare A and Medicare B, and Medicare A individuals are often enrolled in, uh, you know, without um, without input from their perspective. Whereas whereas Medicare Part B requires an affirmative action to be enrolled in it. So is that both A and B when you say if they're enrolled in Medicare for either one? Does that make them ineligible for H? That's right.
0: Yeah, any part of Medicare that you're enrolled in can uh, impact HSA eligibility. So definitely something that could sneak in without the employee or the employer really being aware of it, um, but it's definitely a disqualifier for enrollment in any part of Medicare. Next would relate to the amount that the employee can contribute. So the employee is HSA eligible, how much can they contribute um, quickly? That depends on the employee's uh, HDHP coverage tier, um, so whatever they're enrolled in, um, the annual HSA contribution limit for 2022 is 3650 for self-only coverage and 7300 for family coverage. Family coverage is anything other than self-only coverage. Um, so if the employee had family coverage through 2022, the family limit would, of 7300 would apply. Um, And that's true uh, regardless of the HSA eligibility status of the other covered individuals under the plan. So again, the spouse's Medicare entitlement does not impact the employee's ability to contribute up to the family max. Um, It's just purely whether the employee is HSA eligible and what is their coverage tier. Those are the only things you really have to look at. Um, And you also have the additional $1,000 catch up contribution uh, for those ages 55 or older, so that could also come into play. And then the other great thing about HSAs is that the employee can use their HSA funds to reimburse medical expenses of the employee, the spouse and any other tax dependent on a tax-free basis. Again, this applies regardless of whether the spouse or tax dependent is actually HSA eligible or not. So that means the uh, spouse can be enrolled in Medicare at the, time, the, uh, at the same time, the employee can use HSA funds to pay for the spouse's medical expenses that may not be covered by Medicare.
1: So all in all, it seems like the spouse's eligibility is irrelevant for purposes of the employee's uh, access to HSA contributions.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to sum it up.
1: Okay, so there's one other question I wanted to bring up that relates to HSA that we hear is if a person doesn't fully contribute the maximum amount to an HSA in, for example, year 2021, can they still contribute in 2022, but have it apply retroactively to their 2021 maximum?
0: Yes, Um, you can sort of contribute for 2021, actually up until April 15th of 2022, and you can have that allocated to the 2021 maximum. Um, You want to work closely with the HSA trustee or bank to make sure it's properly allocated. But yes, that April 15th deadline is important. It's also the deadline by which you need to make curative distributions to avoid penalties on any over-contributions to the HSA. So it's it's helpful for that reason too. If I over-contribute in 2021, let's say I um, contributed the max amount in 2021, Um, but I actually look back and realize that I was only HSA eligible for six months of 2021. Um, The way to cure that with, in other words, to avoid a tax penalty would be to distribute out the over contribution. In that example, it would be half of my contribution for the year since I was only eligible for an HSA for six months of the year. So you do that if you do it by April 15th of this year then you don't have to pay the penalty excise tax. Uh, Of course, the amount coming out of the HSA with that curative distribution is still taxable, but at least you can avoid that 6% uh, penalty tax. Why April 15th? Um, Remember the HSAs are individually owned accounts. So that's why the due date there is tied to April 15th. That date feels familiar to us. That's the date we all have to file our individual federal income tax returns. That's our 1040s and the HSA forms that go along with that. And so the IRS essentially says, hey, look, you can kind of fix this up until you file those tax returns, whether it's an under contribution that you're wanting to make a contribution in 2022 and allocate it to 2021, or if it's the opposite where you contributed too much in 2021 and you need to get it out of the HSA to avoid that excise tax. So that four uh, fifteen date becomes a date to circle when it comes to uh, HSA ownership and HSA use.
1: So I assume the reason that someone would want to do that is they had expenses at the end of the year, for example, that they wanted to use their HSA to fund and they didn't have sufficient um, dollars in their HSA account and they still had room to make some contributions and wanted to do so in the next year.
0: Yeah, that comes up or some people just forget, right? They, maybe they have a little bit Going through their employer or being deducted automatically, but they didn't fund to the max. And now they realize they have a little bit of extra cash, uh, maybe go back and, and contribute and allocate it to the prior year.
1: Got it. Okay, so on to the next question we're going to bring in COBRA, which is usually one of our favorite topics and uh, notice requirements under COBRA. Um, is providing a COBRA initial notice? In our enrollment packet, and that's the packet that goes out to all eligible employees, giving them options for enrolling in various benefits. Um, Is that sufficient to meet the distribution requirements for that initial notice? Yeah, so this is a
0: tricky one. And we know employers want to consolidate their notices as much as possible and putting them into these packets uh, because there are just so many notices. And we often work with our clients to be able to consolidate and put notices you know, So you only have to send it once or provide it once um, at certain times. Um, but as far as an enrollment packet like this, the COBRA initial notice is not a great candidate to go in that enrollment pack- packet. To help explain, um, remember that this notice has to be distributed to all newly enrolled employees and spouses within 90 days after the commencement of coverage. And so if you're providing this notice with an enrollment packet, in other words, you know, prior to enrollment, then um, you're not gonna be satisfying the requirement fully. Um, that's because again, the, the initial notice should go only to cover participants. And um, it's helpful to actually read the first paragraph of this notice to kind of understand this distinguishing factor of uh, pre-enrollment versus actual enrollment. Um, The first paragraph of the notice says, you're getting this notice because you recently gained coverage under a group health plan. This notice has important information about your rights to COBRA continuation coverage. So providing the notice to all newly eligible employees before enrollment is providing them with inaccurate information of rights that they do not yet have and actually never will have if they waive coverage. And so it could be not only inaccurate, but probably a little bit confusing to an employee to read that prior to actual enrollment. Um, Really, the requirement here is to provide the notice within 90 days after the participant enrolls and coverage begins. And so, in that way, it's more of a hey, you've actually enrolled. Uh, Here's your notice to let you know your rights under COBRA. The other reason that it's not a great candidate to go in in sort of an enrollment packet or an eligibility packet is that the initial notice is required to be distributed to covered employees and covered spouses. Usually that enrollment packet is distributed only to the employee. And so the spouse is not considered a recipient of the enrollment packet. And so if the employee and spouse enrolled at the same time, the employer can satisfy this notice requirement by sending a single notice um, to one address. So just send the notice and address it to the employee and the spouse. That should be enough. Um, But um, if they enroll at different times, the employee and the spouse, or if the employee's coverage changes uh, throughout the plan year, it could be problematic in that the spouse might not get the notice. So quickly, three scenarios where this could come up. The first is a newly hired employee waives enrollment when initially eligible, but enrolls in single only coverage during the next open enrollment. Um, So if they were provided materials for the initial uh, enrollment, but not for the open enrollment, they would not have gotten this notice. Another scenario is that uh, an employee is enrolled in single only coverage and then gets married and adds the spouse mid-year. So mid-year special enrollment, right? The spouse gets to join the plan. Oftentimes the employer forgets to send the initial notice to the newly enrolled spouse. A third scenario is a newly hired employee waives enrollment when initially eligible, but then enrolls in family coverage mid-year upon the loss of other coverage. Um, That's another scenario where a spouse would be joining the plan and the employers might forget to send that initial notice to the spouse. So just a couple of scenarios there to kind of highlight uh, the the trickiness of this uh, requirement that a COBRA initial notice uh, would be required to be distributed
1: in all those scenarios. Yes, and so a good follow-up question because of the trickiness is what happens if the, the employer fails to provide a COBRA notice timely?
0: Yeah, and this one can come with some significant penalties, potentially. Um, To begin with, uh, the ERISA assigned penalty is $110 per day and um, could also put the employer at risk for legal action brought by participants. That's kind of a standard ERISA right for a a participant in an ERISA plan. Um, If the violation isn't corrected within 30 days of discovery, the employer is supposed to self-report that violation. Uh, And that comes with a civil penalty of $100 per day. Another consequence, though, is less about the monetary or direct monetary. uh, But an employer who fails to comply with this COBRA initial notice requirement related to spouses could not impose the 60 day notification period following a divorce for an ex spouse electing COBRA coverage. So the idea is that if the spouse was never notified, they didn't receive that initial COBRA notice explaining their rights, um, they don't know of that obligation to notify the plan within 60 days of a divorce. And so the employer might be responsible for offering the coverage regardless of when they are notified of the divorce. And so that can also not only trigger kind of a delayed COBRA right, but think about a fully insured plan or a stop-loss carrier they could get involved and in, in maybe deny coverage because it's um, the, the, the carrier might think they're not on the hook for that, right? This is an employer error, administrator error. And so that could leave the employer paying out of pocket for the ex-spouse's claim. That's a couple steps down the road of how it could really come back to bite the employer, but it's definitely worth you know, exploring and, and we have seen that scenario before.
1: Right, yeah, and, and it's definitely a potential. And so some of those, obviously, when you end up self-funding claims you didn't intend to, um, that, can, that can be a scary situation. So very interesting. When we talk about these different notices, there's some like the Part D notice that has no penalty and then others have you know, quite high stakes. So the last question, how should employers fix these notice issues if they haven't done them correctly in the past?
0: Yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot and it's you know, hard to admit when you have mistakes, but everybody has mistakes and stuff that maybe didn't get quite done correctly. Um, So, it does come up. For the COBRA notices, the best practice is, if you have not done this at all in the past, distribute the notice to all currently enrolled employees and and spouses, and then, of course, implement uh, a compliant procedure going forward. Uh, That would be true for the Medicare Part D notice as well. I mentioned earlier, but the Medicare Part D disclosure to CMS Uh, Correction process is a little bit more challenging because there's no set correction process and the CMS site doesn't appear to accommodate prior year filings, but definitely fix it going forward and perhaps reach out to CMS directly to see if there's anything uh, you can or should be doing. And then with all compliance failures for past years, it's best to talk to counsel if you need specific advice. Why? Um, Because there could be additional liability there. And many of these failures can implicate taxes or prior year filings. And so filing amended tax returns or amended forms with the Department of Labor, um, with the IRS that could include W-2s. So going back for amended W-2s, that's always best to go to tax counsel or at least the CPA that kind of knows their way through that process and they can help you get squared away.
1: Right. So, so thank you, Chase. I appreciate you bringing up these, um, these nuanced items. You know, they're not the most um, exciting topic, but it's so important because these are the kinds of things that can trip up our employers, our employer clients. And so they're very important to, to stay abreast of and, and to keep your eye on the ball. So, with that, we will wrap it up. And as we like to say on this podcast, that's a wrap. Thank you that's for joining that. us. Today.